0: Good evening. Welcome. Come on in have a seat. My name is Adam Huff and I'm excited to welcome you to the Arizona Origins Science Association and uh, of course we're branching out from our normal subject of origins related science to talk a little archaeology this evening. So um, we're going to learn a bit about the Exodus and the Red Sea crossing and things of that nature, and what evidence we see in our world today to, that validates things that happened a long time ago that we read about in scripture so it's a special privilege for me to introduce our speaker my friend and colleague Nate Loper from Canyon Ministries uh, many of you know him and for his expertise in Grand Canyon and geology but he also knows an awful lot about archaeology he has actually taught uh, archaeology related topics all over the world in museums and lead tours and different things and He's currently studying for a master's degree in Egyptology. So he just recently was in Egypt, last month actually, not too long ago. So he's coming to us with very first-hand information from a very recent trip. So we're excited to hear what he has to say to us tonight. So come on up, Nate. All right. Thank you, Adam. All righty. Good
1: evening, everyone. It's uh, fantastic to be here. It's kind of different to be on this side of the stage versus sitting down there listening to uh, great talks and speakers that we typically have. So this is fantastic. Um, So again, a lot of you guys I've known for uh, a number of years through Canyon Ministries, which is an organization that Adam and I serve with that does Grand Canyon creation-based tours uh, on a daily basis. So we have tours going out throughout the year um, there are backpacking trips and river trips, but then daily we have rim tours along the rim of the Grand Canyon and all kinds of fun stuff. So we get out there, we do a lot of rocks and geology, and so typically I'm out there doing a rock talk. Uh, but tonight, we're going to dive into a little bit of archaeology, because biblical archaeology is one of my passions. I love learning about it, I love studying it, and I love sharing it with people too. Because understanding things like biblical archaeology helps us to understand you know, the history that the Bible talks about. And in one way, it's a form of apologetics. When you can study and see and understand what the Bible has to say, it gives us an understanding that God's word is true from the very beginning. And so we could talk about a lot of different archaeology topics in regard to the Bible. But tonight, I'm just going to really talk about the Exodus, really. And so the title of my talk tonight is really uh, Exodus Epicenter, which is kind of a little discussion on some key things that have happened mostly in Egypt, in relation to biblical archaeology and what the Bible actually has to say. So talking about this, um, I love Egyptology. That's kind of my side of archaeology studies. And the reason I really love it is not so much about Egypt, but because of the histories and the events that have to do with the biblical narrative, the understanding of the stories and those events that we find within Scripture. And so if you don't know, Egypt throughout history, throughout time, has been an amazing place of a safety, as a place of even protection at times throughout the biblical narrative, throughout the biblical history. And oftentimes we mention Egypt and a lot of times people think, oh, Egypt, that's a bad place, bad place, right, slavery, bad, right? Yes, that did take place for a time. However, many times we see that Egypt was actually a place where God sent his people for protection, for safety, for refuge, all kinds of things. We see when there was a famine in the land that Abraham actually went to Egypt, came back, fully loaded with grain, and given all kinds of wealth and treasures. That's a great story. We see them, that Joseph, when he goes into there, he becomes second in command, and by being that, that leader, that ruler, he's able to save his people from this big, massive famine that takes place. And not only that, but elevated to positions of power. God takes a small family of Jacob and turns them into a nation while they're there in Egypt, and they leave from there. Egypt is also a place that when the Assyrians were attacking and going into Judah, and they were getting ready to siege and attack uh, Jerusalem, we can see that one of the Egyptian pharaohs, Taharqa, came to the aid of Israel. They were allies. We see when Herod was trying to kill baby Jesus, when he was about the killing of all the youngborn, where did Jesus, where did Mary and Joseph go? They went to Egypt. So we see many times, yeah, there's actually a close connection between the people of Israel and Egypt. And in fact, at one point, God even says, Egypt, my people. He talks about them in a close way. Now, we oftentimes do associate Egypt with, you know, the slavery, the leaving the, the Pharaoh and all of that kind of stuff. And that's the Hollywoodized version of it. But there's so much more to it. And so some of that uh, is really the reason why I typically love Egypt. And as Adam said, just this last month, had the opportunity to uh, travel throughout Egypt and see some amazing places, including some of these biblical sites where... Joseph and Jacob and his family where they lived at. And so uh, including some uh, weird looking, you know, cat looking sphinx type things there too, of course. Um, but a lot of fun and it's exciting. So tonight talking about archaeology, let's clear up a little bit of uh, some misunderstandings or misconceptions about archaeology. What it is and what it isn't. So sometimes, you know, you talk about archaeology and what is archaeology? You know, is it all about finding treasure and bringing about gold coins and fun stuff like that? Not exactly. Um, How about what my mom thinks I do? Playing in a sandbox and digging up stuff, right? Aw. How about what media thinks we do? Indiana Jones, every archaeologist is an Indiana Jones, right? Uh, not exactly. Um, How about what incorrect people think we do? You know, archaeology and paleontology, two different things. Paleontologists dig up the fossils. Archaeologists dig up the past and histories of people. Um, You know, what I think I do, digging and uncovering incredible cities and lost treasures. But really what most archaeologists tend to do? Reading, 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 research, studying. There's a lot of that because when you're studying archaeology, it's not just about digging stuff out of the ground. That's only a very small part of what archaeology is. The digging is one thing. The finding and interpretation of what you have is a completely different part, and that takes research and studying and reading and a whole lot of book work um, is involved in archaeology. But uh, I love all of these, so it's kind of fun. I even love playing in the sandbox sometimes with my kids. So... It's a lot of fun, and when we look at archaeology in relation to the Bible, again, tonight I want to talk about archaeology based upon Egypt, and I'm calling this talk the Exodus Epicenter, Evidence from Egypt. And the reason I'm calling it the epicenter is when you understand what an epicenter is, having to do with a big earthquake. The epicenter, you know, is a kind of the central place. And from that central place, from that event, we can see reverberations... And effects from that event. So tonight, in regard to biblical archaeology and what the Bible has to say, I'm going to talk about this from a reverberation. What are the things that have been affected by some of the events in the Bible? What evidences do we find? We can see in Scripture, but then evidenced in the surrounding nations, or in the people groups, or in the history of Egypt and of Israel. So let's talk a little bit about evidence, kind of evidence 101. Let's talk about what we call direct versus circumstantial evidence. So direct evidence, sometimes called physical evidence, versus circumstantial evidence. Anybody heard those terms before? Now both direct evidence and circumstantial evidence are used in a court of law. Now how many of you guys have a pretty good understanding of direct evidence versus circumstantial evidence? I'm sure Gary McCaleb does here, our fine lawyer friend. So there's a difference, right? Direct evidence is like an eyewitness, somebody who sees something take place an eyewitness or something that you can definitely see. Circumstantial evidence would be you kind of maybe infer based upon the facts at hand where you try to figure out the best solution, best understanding. Let me give you an example of that. Let's say you have a dog. This dog's name is Sam. So your dog, Sam, beautiful dog named Sam. What kind of dog is Sam? A bull terrier? Okay. So Sam, that's a great guess. So Sam the Bull Terrier that you have is your dog at home. And one day you leave Sam at home, okay? You go off. You go down to Sedona. You have a beautiful day down there. You're hiking around. You're exploring. You come home, and this is what you see. Huh. Sam the Bull Terrier. Good guess. I love it. So we look here. Take a look at this room. Take a look at the situation. What has happened, my friends? Hmm. There's a mess on the ground. Stuff is torn up. Now based, whoop, where did I slide go? Based upon what you see at hand, what could you say might have happened here? A cat, a cat broke in. I love it. That's a great guess. What's another idea perhaps? He, so you're blaming Sam? Oh, but you don't know that he did it, did you? What else might have happened? We don't know, 100% because we weren't there. A cat could absolutely have broken in, destroyed this place, blamed it on Sam, and he's sitting there saying, it wasn't me, right? But common sense tells us, you leave a dog at home, unwatched, likes to run around, especially bull terriers, what's gonna happen maybe? They might have torn up the place. Is this direct evidence, or is this like circumstantial evidence? It's circumstantial. You weren't there as a witness to see it happen. However, what you can see is, Dog, mess, it's pretty easy to draw the conclusion, right? You look at this and you draw a conclusion based upon this circumstantial, or this evidence that you see making the most sense of all the facts at hand. I don't know anybody in the room that would think aliens came in and zapped apart this room, flew out the window, and then blamed it on poor Sam sitting there, right? In the realm of possibility, I suppose it's out there, but the preponderance of evidence shows us this is the most likely scenario. Your dog, your mess, your problem, right? So, poor Sam, yes, Sam, Sam, Sam. Anyhow, looking at evidence, we have, looking at the different types of evidence, circumstantial evidence is something that's actually, it's very fully admissible in court. You know, you don't have to have direct physical evidence. You don't have to have even an eyewitness in trials and in cases. They've convicted many people based upon just the evidence at hand, the circumstantial evidence, which is something that I'm quite familiar with myself. Um, When I lived in California, I spent, nearly seven weeks on a thirty-year cold case murder trial Now we had no body we had no physical evidence we had no eyewitness nothing that you might say we can't convict because you didn't have any evidence we had a lot of evidence based upon the circumstances at hand based upon the interviews based upon the events and so we found after the seven weeks we found him guilty and after that he confessed to the murder absolutely so we circumstantial evidence is absolutely great evidence. Now, when it comes to the evidence of the Exodus, a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, there's no physical evidence of the Exodus. Well, that might be true, and for a very good reason. The question I like to ask people is, what kind of physical evidence would you expect to find? What is it you're actually looking for, perhaps? Now, when you understand the environment and the landscape that the Exodus took place through, we're talking about deserts, of shifting sand, we're talking about thousands of years, we're talking about a, a, a people group that are leaving and migrating, that aren't building great cities out of stone, but are literally living in tents, moving from place to place to place. Now in only a few years, camping in the woods, you leave a spot there and it's going to be completely covered up, completely removed, probably no trace that you've ever been there. If you go backpacking or hiking in the Grand Canyon, we try to practice leave no trace principles, right? because we want to make sure that we leave the environment clean and pristine. Now imagine a group of tent-dwelling nomads moving through the desert thousands of years ago, 3,500 years ago. What kind of evidence would you actually be expecting? Now thinking about this, it goes even further. We have entire Egyptian capital cities that we know were in existence and are completely untraceable, unfound. Great cities like Ijtawi which was the capital city throughout much of the 12th dynasty in Egypt. This capital city where the pharaoh lived has been completely wiped out because of the shifting of the Nile River, where it's moved over this and it's covered in dirt and it's actually fields. They think they've actually identified the location of where it probably is, but no building exists, nothing that they found. They have no idea other than they've drilled down, dug down, and found a few bits and pieces here and there. But without the knowledge of where it was, it would be as if this entire stone city was completely make-believe, or completely vanished from the face of the earth. Now, if we can't even find a Egyptian capital city, what chance do we expect to find where a tent peg was sitting in the ground 3,500 years ago? Are you gonna go out there and look and say, oh, this is right here, tent of Moses in this tent peg? You're not gonna find that. So what we see is we don't necessarily look for, we don't even expect to find it, we don't look for the physical direct evidence, what we look for is circumstantial evidence. What has changed over time? What has moved? What has shifted? What impact has an exodus event done in the surrounding landscape? But one of the questions we want to ask is, first of all, when was the exodus? When did the exodus event take place? Now, there are some differing opinions on when it took place, but what I like to do is start with the source in God's Word. I like to start with God's Word. The Bible is foundation because it actually gives us a very good clue as to when the Exodus took place. We look in Scripture, and we can actually see 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 says this. In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. So what we see here, 1 Kings 6.1 is an anchor point in Scripture identifying a key point in time for the actual Exodus. So we're looking at 480 years after the Israelites came out of Egypt is when Solomon began to build the temple. So when did Solomon reign? When did he build the temple? So we take a look at this, about 970. Most biblical historians agree Solomon began to reign about that year. 970 BC, about 966, four years into his reign, Solomon started building the temple. And so that means if you take that year, 966, and go back 480 years, you get a biblical exodus date right around the year 1446 BC. That's a straight reading of God's word giving us a clear pinpoint in date. So I tend to pinpoint the exodus date with this. 1446 B.C. It's kind of an identifiable date or location of when the Exodus would have taken place. So when we look at this timeline, what was happening in 1446 B.C.? Well, this is right in the middle of what we call the 18th Egyptian dynasty, which is where most of our like, famous pharaohs tend to come from, like the 18th and 19th dynasty. So a lot of our famous pharaohs come from this timeline, right around that 18th, uh, time, 18th, 18th dynasty time, And so if we look and see, who was the Pharaoh of the Exodus at that point? Well, the Pharaoh of the Exodus at that point, around 1446, would have been Amenhotep II. Now, when it comes to Egyptian chronology, even within Egyptology, there's not always agreement on certain dates and reigns and things like that. You add in other countries and nations like the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Hittites, or the Israelites and suddenly you've got a whole bunch of timelines and chronology you have to kind of work together. Well looking at this, this is the most straightforward chronology we see and this 1446 year reign, or 1446 year time when Amenhotep was reigning is based upon what we call the Egyptian high chronology. We have some actual key identifiers and date markers even in Egyptology, in Egyptian history that help us pinpoint when events took place. One of those, we're going to talk a little bit of astronomy here, but one of those is what we call the heliacal rise of Sothis. So there's a star in the sky called Sothis. The Egyptians called it um, you know, a name that we typically today don't use the word Sothis or what the Greeks would use, but we have this word we call Sirius. Okay? We have a star in the sky called Sirius. And the Egyptians would know that certain times of the year, the star would begin to rise in the east And just after the star began to rise, the sun would come up right behind it. Now due to to the movement of the sun and things like that and the earth around the sun, sometimes you would never be able to see that star because the sun would come up too quick. And so when you have a sun in the sky, you can't see all the stars. However, when you're looking in the sky far to the east, what you would see was Sirius might start to rise. And oh, I barely get a glimpse of it for 10 minutes before the sun lights up the sky. Now, what they would see was every year they would watch for that moment because when they saw what they called the heliacal rise of Sothis, that was an indication to them that guess what? Monsoons were about to happen. We're about to get a flooding of this Nile. We're about to get a lot of growth and ability to plant and to all, do all the great things that Egypt was known for. So right around the time of July, they would mark the exact day, the exact moment, and it was a marker, and so they would record you know, in the sixth year or in the ninth year of this pharaoh's reign, we saw the heliacal rise of Sothis. Now we can pinpoint those dates and those years and the rise because we have great software today that's based upon mathematical observations and things like that. We can actually calculate exact years of these astronomical events. Pretty cool, science is still playing a role in history. So when we look at the heliacal rise of Sothis, what we see is that it kind of identifies with the Egyptian high chronology the Amenhotep II was the Pharaoh who was reigning in 1446, the year of the Exodus. Now, we take a look at that, and then as we continue to see, let's see what the reverberations were around Amenhotep II's life. What were the events that took place during his life that really seemed to match up with what we see in Scripture and in history? There's some very curious aspects to that. So... King Amenhotep II, who we identify as the biblical pharaoh of the Exodus. Some very interesting things. First of all, we have Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian that records a lot of the events of the Jewish people. Josephus tells us, interestingly, that the pharaoh of the Exodus had only recently received the government. In other words, he was a new kid on the block. This wasn't, you know, a pharaoh that was up there in age and had been ruling for many, many years, he was a new pharaoh. Now thinking about this, Josephus lived closer to the time of the Exodus than we do to Josephus today. So he probably had a better understanding of what was happening in those times. It says first of all that he recently received the government. Now when we look at this timeline surrounding the year 1446, of the entire 18th dynasty, we only have one pharaoh who could have been the Pharaoh that the Bible describes that Moses fled from when he killed the Egyptian taskmaster. Remember, he flees for his life. He's afraid of this Pharaoh, so he flees and he goes to the land of Midian where he finds his wife, and they have a time when he's in Midian for about 40 years. And it says during that time, in those days, the Pharaoh died in Egypt. And God spoke to Moses and said, those who are trying to kill you now all died. And that's when God sends Moses back to Egypt. So a plain reading of scripture gives us an understanding that the same Pharaoh that Moses fled from was the same Pharaoh that just died and then Moses goes back. Now that's about a 40 year span. So we need to look for a Pharaoh that reigned for at least 40 years during the 18th dynasty in Egypt. We only have one guy. Only one Pharaoh. And that's Pharaoh Thutmose III. He actually lived to about 54 years. Out of the entire 18th dynasty, he's the only pharaoh that could have reigned and could have been the pharaoh that Moses both fled from and then died just before Moses returns. Thutmose III is the father of Amenhotep II. So those things match up. We not only see the right timeline for this pharaoh, we also see his father matches exactly the biblical narrative. So, Thutmose III, the pharaoh that lived long enough for him to be the pharaoh that Moses fled from and then return right after he died, his son is Amenhotep II, the guy you see right there. Now, another interesting fact from the life of Amenhotep II, Amenhotep II was the only pharaoh of the 18th Egyptian dynasty to have his capital in what we call Lower Egypt, right around the land of Goshen. Now you're like, what's the point of that? Well, if you think about it, what does the scripture reveal to us? Moses is constantly going back and forth to the Pharaoh, sometimes even daily. You know, when the, when the tenth plague happens and the death of the firstborn happened, in the middle of the night, he actually calls Moses to go see him. In other words, this Pharaoh had to live close to where the, the Israelites were living, had to live close to where Moses was at. Now, of the entire 18th dynasty, only one Pharaoh lives in what we call Lower Egypt. Now, if you, pick, if you see a map or a picture of Egypt, what you're going to find is there's this really big, long river, right? What's the name of that river, guys? The Nile. So the Nile River, the longest river we have, the Nile River, kind of goes opposite from most of our rivers that we typically think about. When we think about most of our rivers, you know, going north to south, that's what most of our rivers do, like the Mississippi, and a lot of our rivers kind of go north to south. Well, the Nile River actually flows the exact opposite. Starting way far south, it actually comes from the mountains, and it flows from south to north. In Egyptian history, the upper part of the river was called Upper Egypt, around today's Luxor and where ancient Thebes used to be. And the lower part, where it dumps into the sea, and where it makes a big delta, the biblical land of Goshen, that was Lower Egypt. So if we look at this All the rest of the pharaohs of the 18th dynasty lived way far south in what we call upper Egypt. Only one pharaoh this entire time lives close enough to be by the Israelites. And guess who that is? Amenhotep II. All the other pharaohs lived about 400 miles away. Now, does that fit the biblical narrative? Does Moses have to hear about something taking place or go to have an audience with the pharaoh? jump on board one of the Nile boats and go 400 miles upstream just to have a conversation with Pharaoh, to say, hey, uh, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Moses says, okay, I'm gonna go back home. (sighs) 400 miles all the way down to the river. Back and forth, that that doesn't make sense with the narrative we see at all. What we see is this is a conversation taking place back and forth. The only Pharaoh that we can identify that would have fit this bill, Amenhotep II. The second reason why I believe this is the Pharaoh of the Exodus Third reason is, kind of an interesting one, maybe not a direct understanding, but maybe an inference. But God said, regarding the tenth plague in Egypt, regarding the firstborn, he said that every firstborn male will die. He doesn't say everybody except for only the, the rulers will die. He doesn't say everyone except for you, Pharaoh, will die. He says all of them. So if God is being very, very specific, and I'm not, you know, we're not sure 100%, but if God is being very, very, very literal, in saying every firstborn of the land shall die, that means usually the pharaoh would have been killed too, right? Because usually the pharaoh is the firstborn. He's, you know, the son of the king, and he becomes the next king, right? Well, in this case, it's not at all. Amenhotep II actually was not the firstborn in line. There was another son, an older brother, who actually dies before this takes place. Amenhotep II was not the firstborn son. So therefore, when the tenth plague of Egypt happened, he would not have been killed. Now interestingly enough, his heir, we see Amenhotep IV, was also not the firstborn son. Amenhotep IV was actually a second-born son. In between Amenhotep II just taking reign and his, his successor, Thutmose IV, one of those sons dies. Could that son have been? that son that died in the 10th plague. We're going to talk a little bit about that too. So anyhow, three key things about the life of Amenhotep II. But as we continue to look at, oh, there's, uh, there's Goshen. Sorry, I forgot to show you that one. There's part of that biblical land of Goshen. So this is a picture I took last month. We're driving through the eastern delta, actually right nearby where the Israelite Hebrews would have been living it. Pretty cool. A beautiful, lush land. Pharaoh tells Joseph, I'm going to give you and your family the best of the land, right? That's where they moved to and you look all around Egypt, and there's a lot of desert, a lot of rock. You go up into the delta, boy, it's beautiful. Grasslands and trees, and very, very lush. So this was us driving through to go to some of the places where the, the Hebrew Israelites actually lived, so just last month. So anyhow, we continue to look at the life of Amenhotep II. We have some other curious events that show us and give me an understanding of why this would be the Pharaoh of the Exodus. First of all, as I just mentioned, Amenhotep II's successor, Thutmose IV was not a firstborn son. The firstborn actually dies. So how many guys in this room are a firstborn? Men and women, let's see. So imagine you're all dead. Next in line to take care of the family would be, you know, your younger sibling, right? So this is the case we see with Amenhotep II's successor, Thutmose IV. He's not the pharaoh to take place or not the Pharaoh to take the reign next, but he suddenly comes to power. And in fact, he writes about it at the foot of the Sphinx, between the the feet of the Sphinx, is actually a stela, a monument that was erected by Thutmose IV, Amenhotep's heir, and he talks about how he had miraculously gained the throne. It's a pretty incredible story. We don't have time for all that tonight, but it's a recognized fact that he was not in line for the throne. Something happened to his older brother. Could he have been one that died in this 10th plague? Could he be the son of the Pharaoh who died? I think so. Number two, interestingly, right after this, in the life of Amenhotep II, there is a major power decline in Egypt. So Tutmos III, Amenhotep's father, is a very powerful ruler. He's known as the Napoleon of Egypt. And he goes and does amazing campaigns all throughout, about 17 different campaigns. Now, Amenhotep II only has about two to three campaigns. He doesn't really do a whole lot during his life. It seems that suddenly something happened to the power force of Egypt, this great mighty power. In fact, they talk about, apart from Ramses II, Ramses the Great, Tutmos III probably was the most powerful of all the pharaohs. So we go from this massive powerhouse of subduing the lands and going into Nubia and going into to Assyria and battling with the Hittites, all this crazy stuff that's taking place, and then also we go from a great power to, like, nothing, kind of puny. What may have happened early on in the life of Amenhotep II? What could have happened that took away all that power? Well, maybe the loss of 600 plus chariots and horsemen. Maybe all those that drowned in that sea. You lose your entire army of charioteers, you're not gonna be doing so well to go and fight other nations, right? Interesting little observation. Another observation is there's a drastic change in foreign policy right around this time. All of a sudden, Amenhotep, the second starts making treaties with all these nations around him. Now, his father didn't need to make treaties. His father was, like, like the greatest king in the entire earth at that point. He didn't need to, like, say, hey, hey, uh, can you really help me here? Let's, let's make an agreement that we can, like, you know, be buddies and allies, right? No, if you're, like, if you're, like, the king, if, like, you're the man, you tell people what to do, right? You're like, hey, you're not going to go there. Hey, you're going to give me all your gold, right? That's what we see with Thutmose III. However, when Amenhotep II comes on board... Guess what, he's now like vying for, for political power with other people and saying hey, can you give me, can you help me making all these treaties? All of a sudden he wasn't a dominant power force in the land necessarily. Number four, a very interesting observation. Now, Amenhotep II did do about two, maybe three campaigns, in other words, military expeditions during his lifetime. One very curious one, that some Egyptologists have identified, and that is in the year 1446, the same year we're looking at for the Exodus, he goes into a military campaign into the Levant. Now, the Levant is kind of where we see with, like, Jordan, Israel, like, that whole region, Syria, that region right there, basically the Holy Land. He goes into the Levant, which is curious because this takes place in November. November is typically not... A time of year when pharaohs and kings go to war. In fact, the Bible tells us regarding events later on, it says, in the spring when kings go to war. Springtime is a time of war. You go later in the year and it's kind of their rainy season, you know? They kind of get a monsoon season, kind of like what we have here. And it can be very difficult to go in November. It's not a time of year you're typically going to go. But suddenly he has to leave to go in a campaign to this region, to the Holy Land, to where the Hebrew Israelites were from. He goes on a big campaign, and he brings back a bunch of slaves, a bunch of servants. And in fact, he goes there, as he goes to there, he lays waste to a lot of the land. Was he perhaps looking for those Hebrews that just escaped? Knowing that they came from, you know, the land of Israel, this whole region over here, they came from this land of Canaan. Going back to there, maybe he was actually doing a second attempt at trying to run him down and bring him back. It's an interesting observation. We don't know exactly from history, but it's a very interesting observation. Was he perhaps looking for a workforce replacement? You've got a big workforce of all these Hebrews that now leave your land. November, there's a lot of agriculture that needs to take place. All of a sudden, you're sweating, saying, we're not going to be able to bring in the harvest and the crops. We need some workers. Maybe they're going to bring back some workers to replace those Hebrews. Now, the fourth, or sorry, the fifth little observation here regarding Amenhotep II, I find very curious. His second campaign, only two years, he also goes back into Canaan. He keeps going back to the same place where these Hebrews would have just left from. During this time, he writes in his own words that he captured and brought back 101,128 slaves. He brings back over 100,000 slaves what he refers to as Asiatics. Now Asiatics are not necessarily like we sometimes think of Asian region, you know, like typically the Far East. We're talking about like the Near East. And Asiatic was a term that they call people from this region of Canaan and from Syria, and from this whole area. Basically, if you were to talk about a Hebrew people, you might call them Asiatics. That's kind of the term he would use. So Amenhotep II curiously says that he's gonna go be, he brought back 100,000 of these Asiatic slaves. And he makes specific note that 3,600 of them were what he refers to as the Apiru or the Habiru. Now the word Habiru is very similar to another word like Hebrew. In fact, many Egyptologists, biblical historians believe that the Egyptian word Habiru is a transliteration of the word Hebrew. We see that with Egypt. We also see that with ancient Assyria, uh, with the Akkadian language, that they both have this reference to a Habiru, a Hebrew people that when you understand and study the Habiru people in every way, shape and form fits the bill and matches the biblical Hebrews. So he goes back, he goes and brings back 100,000 slaves. It almost appears as if he had a great hatred for these Asiatic people living there. He goes back twice into this region. Maybe he did have a great hatred. Maybe these guys really showed him up and so they're really trying to come back and Really go back and bring them back. Maybe he's looking for them. In the meantime, instead of going directly to Israel, where does God have them go? They go to Mount Sinai. Not in Israel. And what happens is during that time, there's 40 years of not going to Israel. Maybe God saw it fit during this whole timeline with foreknowledge of the events that would take place. Maybe God saw it fit to send them to Sinai where they would be protected and in safety from this Pharaoh who's continuing to go on a rampage to look for them. What an interesting thought there. Now, we see a definite hatred that Amenhotep II had for these Asiatics, for these Hebrew-like people. We can see it with his own words. Here's a quote from his uh, campaign we just talked about. And in his own words, he says, after his majesty inspected the takings, in other words, all the loot and stuff they were bringing back, after his majesty inspected the takings, great and plentiful, they were all forced to become prisoners. Then two ditches were dug with everything pertaining put into them. All the takings, all the prisoners were put into the ditches. Then he filled the ditches with fire. And his majesty kept watch over them until dawn, his battle ax in his right hand. He was alone without anyone with him for his army and even his royal bodyguard were far away from him when he did this. According to this translation by Egyptologist Dominic Perry, Amenhotep II burned 350 Asiatic people that he was capturing, burned them alive. Now that is hatred of a people. That's not typically what pharaohs would even do in history. It's not typically their norm. There's something about this pharaoh that he really detests this people group. And maybe he's frustrated even that he can't Find the exact people. He can't find Moses himself, but he's going to take it out on all of his fellow countrymen, all his you know people that live in the same area. He obviously has a hatred for these Asiatic or Semite people. Kind of interesting. So that's one of the few of the reasons why I believe that Amenhotep II is the Pharaoh of the Exodus. But some of you in the room might say, "Well, wait a minute. What about Ramses? Isn't Ramses you know I see it on the the movie? How many guys remember the old uh, you know?" Moses, let my people go, you know, the, who did that film? Um, see? Charlton Heston, yeah. No, um, oh, that was Ben-Hur. You'll, yeah, and let's see, who, from. Oh, Charles B. DeMille, E.L. DeMille, Moses film, and you see Ramses coming through. Well, some Egyptologists initially thought Ramses was a pharaoh, some still do, but when you look at the events that take place, it doesn't really match up. But, what about Ramses, you know? And if you were to ask, well, what about Ramses? Isn't the Ramses the Pharaoh? I might say to you, oh my goodness, I totally forgot. How, how could I have been so foolish? Ramses, of course, um, um, I have to figure out what needs to happen with this. Well, I don't have to figure it out. Let's go to the word of God and see what it has to say. So when we go and examine, we take a look at the word of God, what we can see actually is the reference that most people would use to say, ah, oh, Ramses is the Pharaoh of the Exodus, right? So when we examine the word of God, we examine scripture, what do we see? We find a verse, and it references this name, Ramses. And this is the verse that most people tend to look at. Exodus chapter 1, verse 11 says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities Pithom and Ramses. So some people in the early days said, Oh, Ramses, they built a city called Ramses. It was named after Ramses. Therefore Ramses must have been the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Take a look at this, and okay, it makes kind of sense on the surface until you begin to actually study the history of what was taking place in Egypt and the history of our Bible, even. Now, we look at this word Ramesses. This word is, is, is a name of a city. However, today, it's not the name of that city. We call it by different names. It's what we refer to as an anachronism big, long, fancy word. Don't worry, kids, that's going to be the biggest word I'm going to teach you tonight. Don't worry adults, that's gonna be the biggest word I'm gonna teach you tonight. So an anachronism basically is something kind of out of place and usually oftentimes out of time in a story. So an example of this, first of all, if I were to tell you that back in 1540, Spanish conquistadors came through this region. They actually came in through southern Arizona. Then they swung over to New Mexico before they eventually came down around through the Hopi mesas into this part of Arizona once again and they discovered the Grand Canyon back in 1540. Now, if I were to tell you that story, you're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? So you start to think about it. I just said that in 1540, Spanish conquistadors came into Arizona and into New Mexico. Well, back in 1540, did we have Arizona? Did we have New Mexico? Well, the land was here, right? But did we call it by those names? No. So if I were to tell somebody, for example, back in the 1600s, that you know, a couple hundred years ago or a hundred years ago that Spanish conquistadors came to New Mexico, they would say, New Mexico, where's that? Arizona, what's that? They didn't use that term. We use that term today, and when I tell a story like that at the Grand Canyon, I use those terms of like Arizona, New Mexico, because I'm trying to communicate to my audience the place that I'm describing. The place is the most important part, not even the name. Now if I tell you, for example, that back in the year 1643, My earliest answers that I've been able to trace back, a guy named Jacobus Loper, he actually came to America and he founded and helped settle part of what we call New Amsterdam. And he actually was a Dutch man-of-war ship captain in New Amsterdam. Some of you guys might be saying, New Amsterdam? Where's that? Some of you historians in the room might say, New Amsterdam, that is New York. We call it New York because I think it was right around 1654 that it, went from the Dutch control to the English control, and they renamed it New York. So it doesn't make any sense to you today when I start talking about New Amsterdam, it makes more sense to you, oh, New York, yeah, I know where that is. And if I were to tell you that their house was actually on Manhattan area, and it was actually on the corner of Stone and Pearl Street, I'm identifying present day locations to convey to you an actual location. It makes sense to you today, right? Now, of course, back then they didn't have all those names, but it's an anachronism that I'm using to convey the story. The same thing is true we find within Scripture, actually. We find that you know the earliest written words of the Bible were not even written in the typical Hebrew square Aramaic block letters we see today. That wasn't even used until they went into captivity into Babylon for 70 years. Before that, they actually were writing... Throughout most of the biblical history, throughout most of, like, you know, the kingdom of of Israel and of Judah, they were using what we oftentimes refer to as Paleo-Hebrew or even Biblical Hebrew, which looked very different. And so over time, you know, as they're looking and as the Bible's being compiled, sometimes they're having to take earlier written versions and update them to the language of the people. We tend to see this probably taking place when they come back from captivity in Babylon. When they're going through and we get Nehemiah and his men that come together and begin to read the word of God in a way that they could understand. They had to take it from a language or a written form that they were using to a new form that the people could understand. And many biblical historians believe that that's when certain, like, updates, you might say, to the Bible, like key places that, well, like Ramses. Ramses wasn't built, it wasn't known, sorry, it wasn't known as Ramses in 1446 when the Hebrews were living there. But it was known as Ramses, at the time that we would see this update to the Bible. So that you can communicate with the present day audience. Because the Bible's not really so much about conveying key exact words as it is about the events and the histories and the stories and the locations that have taken place. So most people think looking at this timeline that this city called Ramses was actually an updated place name. Before then it had other names like Avaris and Peru Nefer, which is the Egyptian word meaning basically Bon Voyage. It was a port city where it was a great harbor, so it was also known as Peronefer. It was at one point known as Ramses, during a very key point. It was also later known as Kantir, and if I were to go to Egypt today, and if I were to tell a taxi driver, can you take me to the city of Ramses? Can you take me to Peronefer? Can you take me to Avaris? They're probably gonna scratch their heads and say, I have no idea where that is. So I kind of have to use the modern location, we call it, and the site where this would have been is an archeological dig site we call Tel Eldaba. That's what we call it today. So if you're referring to a place, Avaris, Peronefer, Ramses, Cantier, Tel Eldaba, are those the same place? Yes. So it's not necessarily the name that we find that's important in Exodus 1-11, it's the location. And during this time, this location actually, where we see the city of Ramses, in the time of Joseph, in the time of Moses, this was known as Avaris, and then shortly after that, known as Nefer. It's the same location, but a different name. But of course, the people of the day reading the Bible would have said, I don't know where Avaris is, but I know where Ramses is. So we kind of see this anachronism in the Bible. We find that throughout other places, including locations described in Israel, that they were going in when the conquering of Canaan took place. They describe key locations within there. So this place name does not necessarily associate with Ramses, but the location, so we can kind of rule out Ramses II. That's kind of a whole different talk we can get on to, not necessarily for tonight. But the next big question, what we talked about when was the Exodus, who was the pharaoh of the Exodus. The other question we want to dive into is, where was this Red Sea crossing? This is a highly debated topic among Egyptologists, among biblical historians, and you know what? If I'm completely 100% honest, we don't fully know. The Bible does not give us the exact location necessarily. It doesn't tell us with a flag it was here. But we read what the Bible has to say. And based upon what it says, we can draw some conclusions about that narrative. The Bible gives us a very good clue. Exodus chapter 14, verse 2. This is God describing, telling things to Moses as they're leaving Egypt. He says, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi hai between Migdal and the sea. In front of bel you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Here we find three key locations that we can use, actually four, including the sea, four locations that we can use to kind of triangulate where this Red Sea crossing would have taken place according to what the biblical narrative says. pi Hai Haroth, Migdal, the sea, and bel Now, the question is, where were those locations? Well, that is what's kind of debated among Egyptologists, among biblical historians. Where were those locations? And a lot of people that try to figure this out have done a lot of research with the landscape, have done a lot of research in the Bible. But oftentimes I find a lot of people don't actually go to the location that took place, like Egypt. They don't study this from Egyptology. Because Egyptian history, Egyptology actually gives us a very important clue. It actually provides information about this. We take a look at those locations, and what do we see here? First of all, we see that word Pai Haiharath. Now that's a fun word. It's often been translated as meaning the opening or the mouth of the water, or sometimes the opening or the mouth of the river, the opening or mouth of the canal. Pai Haiharath basically means opening of the water, the mouth of the water. Now interestingly, this picture you see in the background is from uh, Luxor, which is a Karnak temple, and back then, it was known as Thebes. And if we see here, let's so see, have got a laser, there we go. So this is the hypostela wall of Pharaoh Seti I. And what we see, if you look here, here's the Pharaoh, Pharaoh Seti, with his chariots and his horse right here. And he's leading back all of these captives, you see that? They're leading back all the captives. Now here's something you need to know about Egyptian maps and things like this. This is what this is, it's actually a map. The Egyptians saw things kind of flipped upside down for us. For us, you look at a map and the top is north and the bottom is south, right? But because the Egyptians saw the Nile as a source of life, they saw the world starting at the top and going the opposite way. (laughs) Kind of like we talked about with the Nile River. For them, the directions were opposite. South was north. So directions are reversed. East is west, back and forth here. So we look here, what we see is Pharaoh Seti bringing back a bunch of captives and they're getting ready to cross this canal. And you can see actually there's some crocodiles in there. He's leading them across this canal. Now here is a picture of what that actually looks like. A little bit better drawn, easier to see. Seti I his horse and chariot. He's leading back captives here. He's leading back all these captives here with their arms tied behind them. And they're getting ready to cross this canal of water. And there's a sea of water here. Okay, we can see some tilapia fish here. We can see crocodiles right here. And in the middle here, we have this kind of bridge, a mouth or an opening of the water, you might say. Now, if you look here, um, there are hieroglyphs that are actually associated with this crossing. You don't see in this picture, but they're identifying this location, which is right here. And the hieroglyphs that you find that identify this is in Egyptian, it says Ta-Dinet, and then down here, we have this that says Yam. So Ta-Dinet means the division or the dividing, and Yam, often like we see in Hebrew, the word yam means sea or water. So we see here, interestingly, a division of the sea. And then the last symbol down here is what we call a determinative. It actually is a picture of a canal. So you put this together, ta, denet, yam, and then the canal is telling us this is a, a division of the sea canal. In other words, it's a division of a canal that comes from the sea. Interestingly, what does that... Word Pai Ha'i haroth means opening or mouth or division, perhaps, of the water. This is what we believe is identified with that Pai Ha'i Horoth. It's, it's a division, it's an opening of this canal. Now, this canal is what we refer to as the Wadi Tumalat. There's a canalway that was dug from the tip of Suez going all the way actually to one of the branches of the Nile River. And it was actually worked on by three different Egyptian pharaohs. And then lastly, um, or it was later on worked by Darius as well. So many people, many rulers in this region actually worked on digging this big canal. Now this really big canal creates a division, an opening. So looking at this, we have one clue, pi the opening of the division of the sea canal. This is the only way, this is a crossing point to get in and out of Egypt. It was a border fortress. And all these other little things here, you see here actually these are fortresses They were built along the way. So there are multiple fortresses along the way as you're entering into Egypt. Now, to get into Egypt, you had to cross a canal. You had to cross the only bridge. This is the opening of the water, the division of the water. The next word we can find here is Migdal. Now, the word Migdal is is a location. The word Migdal um, in the Hebrew kind of means a fort or a fortress. But in relation to Egypt, Migdal is always used as a proper name location. And it's used many times. It's not just used in the Exodus account about Migdal. God Himself, speaking in, through Ezekiel, tells Ezekiel that I will make the land of Egypt a totally desolate wasteland from Migdal to Aswan. Now, where was Migdal? Way up here, a border city, a border fortress. We kind of place we kind of identify it right here near the tip of Suez, along that little canal. You see that little stream of water going that way? That little section right there would be part of that wadi tumalat, that kind of canal that was dug. In fact, it was first dug, we believe, during the reign of the pharaoh of Joseph. Interestingly, that's what we see in archaeology. That's when it began to be dug. Maybe Joseph himself had commissioned the digging of this canal. Anyhow, Migdal, near the top, the border into Egypt. And then where is Aswan? Way down here. So what is God saying about Migdal and Aswan? He's basically saying, I will make the land of Egypt totally desolate wasteland from top to bottom. I'm going to lay waste to this whole land. So it kind of gives us a clue of where Migdal would naturally be. It's a border city of Egypt belonging to Egypt proper. Egypt proper never really included the Sinai Peninsula. This is not part of Egypt in historical times. Egypt was defined by the Nile River. This was the land that Egypt looked at. This was the land, the, the Kemet, the land of Egypt, defined by the blackness of the land of the Nile River. So here is Egypt, from top to bottom, Migdal to Aswan. So we can identify kind of where Migdal would have been. That's another marker. And then a third one here is Zephon. Now the word Zephon has been translated by some. Baal, kind of the word meaning lord, and Zephon, a similar word to the Hebrew word Zaphon, which means north. So the best translation, I believe, is a uh, lord of the north. Now, there is another thing called Baal Zephon, which is actually north of Israel in another country, but they also called it Baal Zephon, and it's known as a really big, tall mountain. And it was a mountain that they called Baal Zephon, a place of worship. Now, interestingly, in this location, right next to where Migdal would have been, right next to the pi Hahiroth crossing, we have a really big, tall, prominent mountain. It is the northernmost prominent mountain in Egypt. It's a place of worship. We can see that the Egyptians had altar sites built on top of there. So looking at this, what we find actually very interesting clue in Egyptian history. There is the Cairo-Demotic papyrus that actually gives us a geological or geographical uh, itinerary for border fortresses as you enter into Egypt. Now, interestingly, one of those border fortresses, like we just saw in the picture before, that's listed near the Wadi to Malat, near that canal, was recorded as the Migdal of Baal Zephon. So in the Bible, when God says, you know, Migdal, Baal Zephon, Pihiroth, the sea, all this comes together, we start to look, it actually provides us from Scripture alone a geographical pinpoint. And that word Baal Zephon, this Migdal of Baal Zephon, basically means the fortress of the Lord of the north. I think that this Baal Zephon was probably a reference to this mountain, and there was a fortress that became a city later on, developed at the base of it, In fact, Migdal is also referenced later on. It's actually a place that the Israelites, or those who went to Judah, or from Judah went to Babylon. After Babylon they came back, some of them moved and lived in Egypt. In fact, Jeremiah, you guys probably don't know this, Jeremiah actually moved to, lived in, and died in Egypt. They lived in places like Tehaphanes and Migdal. So this is a location that God identifies in Scripture. So we start to look at this, and along the entire area we can start to look and pinpoint where was the crossing of the place. Well, we identified Pajarath, Migdal, and the sea. There's a lot of debate back and forth. My personal favorite location is actually near the tip of Suez, the Gulf of Suez, which we see here. This is Suez City. There's an interesting little land bridge here. This is actually from here to there, about seven miles in length. I tend to look at this. There's a mountain down here, Migdal, all this stuff, probably crowded right along this area and God parted the sea through here, which we're talking about miles and miles of water and huge depths that they could actually drown an entire army. So starting to look at this, here's a beautiful picture of the Red Sea I took on the coast of it just uh, last month. Uh, Fantastic, beautiful water. But even being along this little area along the tip of Suez, it's so much larger in person than it looks like in pictures. You know, you look at a map, a satellite map, and it doesn't look all that big. like, could that be big enough to drown an army? Yeah, you better believe it, because here I'm looking straight across, and I can't even see the opposite side of the Gulf of Suez. It's so far away, and there are huge ocean-lining ships going out there. Yeah, you can absolutely stand there and say, yeah, we could drown an army here pretty easily. So we look at that, so typically what I like to place is that is right around this area. Interestingly, the city we now call Suez, we see here, was actually known in Greek and Roman times as the city called Clisma. They called it Klyzma because it's related to the word cataclysms, where we get that word cataclysm, a catastrophe. They called it Klyzma because it was said that that was the place where the catastrophe of Egypt took place. Hmm, interesting. So Suez City today was Klyzma, and here I personally think they probably crossed right around that area. A seven mile stretch of body of water going across there. Adequate in size to drown the Pharaoh and his army, adequate in size to do a lot of work And so we see some of the events in history related to Egypt. That's where I tend to place the crossing of it. That's a whole other talk though, we could do on the crossing of of it. But other reverberations that we see, I'll quickly get into here before we wrap up. The conquest of Canaan. Not only do we have the Exodus event, but leading after that we have the 40 years in the wilderness and then the conquest of Canaan. Interestingly, at the right time, the right place, and involving the right people, we have records of things that have taken place For example, these are the Amarna letters. This is a picture I took from the British Museum in London. These are tablets written in cuneiform language, the Akkadian script here. These were letters that were being sent by Canaanite rulers, you know, the typical Holy Land. They were Canaanite rulers sending letters to the pharaoh of Egypt at that time. And right around the same matching timeline and everything, here is what these Canaanite rulers say. They tell the pharaoh that the Habiru, you know, Hebrew, the Habiru are attempting to take Jerusalem. They're talking about how the Habiru are coming into the land and that they are being overwhelmed. And, you know, Pharaoh, if you don't send aid and help, we're going to be overrun by these Habiru. We're no longer going to be able to pay you know, tribute and taxes to you because we are going to lose our lives. And so there are numerous, there's actually hundreds of these cuneiform tablets about different topics. But a number of them talk about the advancing Habiru people, which matches up with the timeline, matches up with, the people name, matches up with the events we see with the conquest of Canaan. I think it's pretty interesting. Actually, a lot of them were uh, uncovered and and described by my favorite Egyptologist and archaeologist, Flinders Petrie, which is kind of the father of modern archaeology. Also a Bible-believing archaeologist. Pretty cool. So anyhow, the Amarna letters, you can look that up. It's a great, more studies and information on that. But another little one that I'm going to wrap up with here is a very recent discovery, a recent publication, and that is the Mount Ebal Altar and what we call the curse tablet. Anybody familiar with biblical archeology span may have heard about the Mount Ebal curse tablet recently. 2019, Dr. Scott Stripling with the Associates for Biblical Research, he and his team uncovered as they were wet-sifting through some some rubble from an altar site that they found on Mount Ebal um, back in the 1980s, a guy named Adam Zertal had discovered a curious altar site on Mount Ebal, which actually, very interesting, because what we see here is that God describes an event that was supposed to take place in Deuteronomy, and says to Moses, on that day, Moses commanded the people, when you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim, so part of the people would stand on Mount Gerizim to give a list of which tribes would stand here to bless the people, and these other tribes will stand on Mount Ebal, the opposite mountain, to deliver a curse, and the curse was basically We commit ourselves to God, to Yahweh, and if we don't, if we break that curse, or we break that promise, may a curse fall upon us. It's a blessing, you know, if you keep God's commandments, keep the ways of Yahweh, you will be blessed. If you break the promise, you break the covenant, you will be cursed. So it's a curse upon themselves, they're saying. So he says that tribes will stand, half half the tribe or half the group will stand here, half the group will stand there, and they'll proclaim and announce curses and blessings. So on Mount Ebal, on this mountain of cursing, Adam Zertal found this interesting altar. He did a lot of excavation work in the 1980s, collected a lot of the, uh, the filling that was inside of it, kind of the rubble. Nine, 2019, it was wet-sifted and they found some interesting things. But regarding an altar, why would an altar be built on Mount Ebal? Well, scripture tells us right here. Joshua 8, verse 30. At that time, when they'd entered into to, uh, cross the Jordan River, and when they were into there, at that time, Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord, the God of Israel, just as Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. So he talks about building this altar and matches in every way the description of what the altar would be like. And from the tailings pile, from the the rubble that they dug out of there, in 2019 they were sifting that material, and they found this tiny little, small little, two centimeter by two centimeter lead tablet called a defixio which is basically a tablet that you would write either like a curse upon someone else that you didn't like or swear an oath by, it was like an everlasting curse because you write on a tablet with a stylus and it leaves a permanent imprint on it. And it was also a way that you would write you know, land records and things like that, but it's basically a legal binding document. They discovered this in 2019, but because this lead was so old and so brittle, they were unable to open it. So like, we can like, we can't open it. They actually tried and you know, the little section kind of chipped off here. So we can't really open this without destroying it. But then they got an idea, let's send it to a lab for what we call tomographic scanning, similar to CT scanning, where you can actually use, you know, technology to kind of scan inside of it and take little minute slices of the actual artifact. And they found the little imprints on the inside without even having to open it up, you could read on the inside. Pretty cool. So they begin to open it up, they took a look and began to figure out what the letters were. There were 40 characters on there and what they deciphered was, This was what we call a curse tablet, and here's what the context of it says, the content. It says, cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yahweh. You will die cursed, cursed you will surely die, cursed by Yahweh, cursed, cursed, cursed. So it's kind of repeating, almost like a poem of a curse. And this is something that the Hebrew people, when they first came there, would say basically, we will will bring a curse upon ourselves if we break the promise we make with God. We declare a legal binding document. And it was placed within this altar, the altar of sacrifice. So you write this legal binding document for you and your people and you throw it into the fire and say, let this forever bind and hold us to the ways of our God. Pretty interesting. So there's actually a research paper being done on it. It's actually groundbreaking. but Groundbreaking. Archaeological discoveries. All the kids got that. Great. So archaeological discoveries about new and exciting information I believe. The research paper has not even been fully published yet. They, just, they actually announced it last year, um, spring of last year, they announced this cursed tablet and Scott Stripling and his team have been still going through, trying to do the archeological work to kind of really get a good, solid, peer-reviewed research paper. It's still actually undergoing peer review because I wanna make sure that the, the announcement and discovery is done really well. But on the inside, we find these very interesting characters. These are some of the early, what we call Paleo-Hebrew we talked about, or Biblical Hebrew kind of a earlier before that, we had this proto-alphabetic, kind of the beginnings of the alphabetic language. For anybody who's seen um, Patterns of Evidence, the Moses controversy, they talk about the development of our written language coming from what they refer to as proto-alphabetic or sometimes known as proto sinaitic And so the development of our letters, these are actually the letters that we kind of use for YHW, which really in Hebrew is Yahweh. Now, it's actually one of the earliest known forms of the written word, Yahweh. And if this whole discovery pans out, this artifact could be the earliest known reference or mention of the name of God in history that we've discovered. Pretty cool. Not only is that amazing, wow, an awesome artifact, but it also shows us that at the time of the conquest, at the time of the exodus, at all this time, people actually could write alphabetic language. So it shows us that looking at this, yeah, it dates to the same time period. This is what the, the research team they determined it dates to right around 1400 BC, the late Bronze Age, too period. So after the exodus of 1446, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, seven years of the conquest, right around the exact same time place we find home. So it confirms a biblical date for the exodus. It also confirms a biblical account of what was taking place, the altar built upon Mount Ebal showing that they also, the early Israelites, did worship Yahweh. It wasn't just something they made up hundreds of years later, like some people who you know, are biblical minimalists might like to say. And most importantly, it also gives us an understanding that, yeah, Moses himself could absolutely have written and recorded what we see in the Bible, the accounts of the Exodus. He had an ability to write. The people could write, so they could record the exact things that we see with Genesis and with much of Exodus. Pretty interesting little artifact there. And so looking at this artifact, this has caused shock waves in the archeological community. Dr. Scott, uh, Scott Stripling, who was in charge of that team, says this about the curse tablet. He says, the ramifications of this curse tablet from Mount Ebal, the mountain of the curse, are enormous. The aftershocks of this find will reverberate for decades. And that's why tonight I've been talking to you guys about the Exodus epicenter the reverberation, the aftershocks that we see, what do we find in Egyptian history, what do we find in biblical history, what do we find physically on the landscape? That's just some of it. That's only, you know, an hour-long talk. Now, if you want to know more about that, jump on the Associates for Biblical Research website. They're fantastic partners and friends of actually Canyon Ministries. Um, They've done interviews with us on there before. And learn more about some of this or feel free to contact me. It's one of my areas that I really love studying. Um, Like Adam said, I'm working on a master's degree in ancient civilizations with a specialty side of that in Egyptology. Not really because I care about Egypt and all their you know, weird gods and all that stuff, but I want to look and see where does the Bible talk about and be in those places and those key places and locations, and so exciting stuff. Um, but I think we've got a few minutes for questions and answers. I know it's kind of a quick whirlwind of a talk. I kind of do talk quickly and throw a lot of stuff at you guys tonight. Um, any questions that you guys might have about this or anything related to it? I'd love to be able to... Great observation. So why do the years go down? Well, this is what we call BC, before Christ time period. And so if you look at it, we are at what year right now? We just turned into year 2023. What was last year? 2022, you continue going back, eventually you get to year zero, right? And it's around that time when the birth of Christ took place. So, but if you're going to go from when Jesus was born, before that, what year are you going to go a year before Jesus was born? You might say year one before Christ, year two before Christ. So you're going to add up going the opposite. So when you look at timeline of history, B.C. to what we call A.D., which is today's present, is kind of where we have that dividing. So when you start to work your way backwards, the further you go back in time, the larger the number gets. So that's why when you see like Solomon's reign, right? He, lived, he reigned right around the year 970 B.C., and then four years after that, if you're getting closer to the time of Christ, would be you know, four years after that, 964, or 966 BC. So we kind of see that the times actually get shorter and shorter and shorter in the BC side until we get to Christ. And then from Christ's birth until today, they grow bigger and bigger. Hopefully that makes sense. It is kind of confusing. I even get confused, and like, wait, if we're talking about this, which century am I talking about? The 15th century BC, that means? Okay, it does get complicated. But that's where we see the ABC to AD, which is kind of today's modern time. Really, history, just centered around Christ, pretty cool. Questions? Anybody else? Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. So that would be Pharaoh Akhenaten. Um, so he was born with the name Amenhotep. Oh, sorry. So um, yeah, Amenhotep the uh, the fourth. And so he actually renamed himself to Akhenaten, which was in reference to Aten, which was kind of seen as a sun god deity. Now many people have thought, well maybe this was a, a change of the Egyptian religious system going from this you know, pantheon of gods to more of a, a monotheistic version. Because what he did was actually do away with worship of all these other Egyptian gods. And he worshiped only one god. The, the one god he saw as the true god. Now, someone thought in, in his maybe lack of full understanding, the lack of the written word of God, he was trying to worship Yahweh you know, in the best way he knew possible. You know, many cultures around the world look at the sun as the creator, as the chief God. And ultimately, that's who God first identifies himself to us as, as our creator. So Akhenaten actually does away with the state religion. He actually moves the entire capital to a city, and he actually builds a city named after himself, Akhenaten. And so he, uh, his wife, Nefertiti, is the one we kind of think about, like the most beautiful queen of Egypt. So Akhenaten and Nefertiti built this entire city, um, and so this place in Arma, um, Amarna. And so they developed this whole different city. And some people have associated that with perhaps worship of Yahweh because this takes place after the Exodus and, if, and after the conquest in Canaan. And it could have been that with all these events happening, Pharaoh had heard about this god of these Hebrews and said, uh, I like that guy. I want to worship him too maybe perhaps he was trying to worship you know, Yahweh, you know, the one true God, in that form or that way possible. Now when he dies, the rest of Egypt says, <laughs> we didn't like that king, what he was trying to do, so they do away with it very quickly. We don't know exactly, it doesn't mention the name Yahweh anywhere in regards to that. Um, there are references to, to these nomads of Yahweh, the Shasu of Yahweh. So we actually do see references to the Hebrews, we believe, but not necessarily with this one God of Akhenaten's time. So interesting, but it could have been where it was. I was In the Cairo Museum, they actually have um, his sarcophagus that was found in a lot of those artifacts, so it's kind of neat to kind of see that. And we kind of wonder, maybe this was somebody that saw the power of, of God and what happened with Egypt and the land. In fact, what does it say? Um, I can't remember the exact reference, but when they're going into to conquer Jericho, Rahab is there, and she's saying to the spies, she said, you know, I want to basically help you. In fact, the entire city is in fear and trembling because they have heard about the power of your God in Egypt with the Red Sea, and they've heard about the power of your God as you came through here and how you defeated the Amalekites and all this. The entire region, the entire land had already heard about what God was doing. They heard about the power of Israel. They heard about the power of Israel's God. And so, of course, no doubt, the Pharaoh would have also heard that. He would have gotten these letters coming to him from these Canaanites saying, uh... This whole new little band of rebels is basically unstoppable. Something is happening. They're being helped by God. And so maybe perhaps Akhenaten saw that and said, hey, let me do away with this useless pantheon of gods that's not been doing us any good. Let's serve this one true powerful God. I don't know. Could be. I like to think about it. It's a great, great question, great observation. Yeah. Other ones? Thank Um, no, not necessarily. The word Baal-Zephan is actually the later attribution word. It wasn't necessarily the word that was used for this mountain when Moses would have been leaving there. Um, it was later used because it was a word that we get not from Egyptian language, but actually from what they're seeing with the, uh, the Canaanite area. You know, they had the worship of Baal as a god. And then that word Zephan, really, I think the best understanding of that is that same word we see in the Hebrew, Zephan, um, meaning north. And so at that point, the Israelites were not thinking north is south and south is north. So, And in later times when the Assyrians and when the Babylonians actually went and actually conquered Egypt, and then the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans, when all these nations conquered Egypt, they kind of did away with their backwards thinking. So baal Zephon would actually still be the name used for the lord of the north um, according to the biblical you know, Hebrew tradition. That's a, great, that's a great thought. I haven't even put that together and thought, huh, if north is south, you know, would they have used that word? I like this guy, he's got that critical thinking mindset. Great question. Uh, Other questions, we still got some time here. Ah, that is a great question, I'm glad you asked my friend. So, some people have promoted the idea that Egyptian chariot wheels have been found. I'm sure some of you may have seen videos on YouTube or blogs written about it. Um, Let me just be honest with you guys and say, to date, no Egyptian chariot wheels have been proven to be found. There are some ideas, there are some pictures. Let me actually show you what that looks like. I'm glad you asked, because I knew somebody would. You're the winner tonight. So, it's kinda hard on this screen, this picture. But this is a picture by um, a guy who did a lot of research, a guy named Ron Wyatt, who did a lot of study in the area. And one of the best pictures that they would have for what they thought was an e- Egyptian chariot wheel. They also found some coral structures that they said may be coral-encrusted chariot wheels, and, you know, although we look at coral and realize it's not the case. But this picture, hopefully from back there you can see it a little bit easier, um, is one of the best claims for it in a chariot wheel. And this is actually found not in the Gulf of Suez, but in the Gulf of Aqaba, on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula, um, right alongside in the ocean sized area from what we call Nueva beach going across uh, that part of the Red Sea. Now they looked and they were diving trying to find chariot wheels. This is one of the best pictures. However, we've analyzed this picture quite extensively and it really looks nothing like an Egyptian chariot wheel. Here's that picture down below here, okay? And here are what actual Egyptian chariot wheels look like. In fact, here's a picture I took just last month in the Cairo Museum of a chariot from the same time period the same, you know, area um, of the exodus. Now, look at these spokes. First of all, narrow spokes. Look at this hub connected here, okay? Very different. The wheel is actually, the entire thing is made out of wood. And they actually had a little, like, a rawhide wrap on the outside, like a little tire on the outside for shock absorption and protection of the wood. If you look at this here and start to analyze this here, they don't look anything alike, do they? This is the best, evidence, the best picture of the chariot wheels that you might see on YouTube. Sorry, YouTube has created a lot of bad archeology. span We call them, you know, armchair archeologists. It's Not done such a good job with true understanding. Good intentions, not always the right conclusion. So we look here, look at these spokes, okay? This is a wheel of sorts, right? It's round, it has these, okay? I would say, yeah, it's a wheel. But is it a chariot wheel? Could it be something else? Could the ocean actually have a lot of wreckage you know, some and some all kinds of stuff littered along there. Could the ocean sea actually have a lot of stuff? Yeah, in fact, it does, right in the same exact area. But look at the, the kind of so-called spokes here. First of all, most chariot wheels, and especially of this time, were actually having six spokes. There are one example here that we see of a racing chariot that only had four. This was really not used very much during this timeline, but this has four. Okay, but they're very flat. They're very flat, not a rounded spoke. Look at the hub right here doesn't look anything like this. So yeah, you might see this picture on YouTube and somebody says, oh, they found chariot wheels. And if you didn't know anything about what a chariot wheel looks like, you might say, yeah, that actually looks pretty good. Oh, there's a wheel. It must be a chariot wheel. But if you understand what chariot wheels look like, you're gonna say, eh, we know what Egyptian chariot wheels look like. This is actually the tomb of, uh, of King Tut right here, which was a 100-year discovery anniversary just this year, just recently. So all these chariot wheels stacked up. We know what they look like. This doesn't look like it. So, to further answer the question, a project that I worked on this last year was, what is this? If we look at this and say it's not a chariot wheel, it's helpful for us to figure out what it actually is. So through a lot of painstaking research, we actually determined it's not a chariot wheel, it is a pulley wheel. It's a pulley wheel from a ship. And we have, you know, you're pulling up cargo and things like this from a boat. And in fact, if you look at it, what pulley wheels look like, these kind of flat sections here, look at the hub here, It's metallic, chariot wheels were never made out of metal. They were always made out of wood. This chariot wheel picture is not a chariot wheel. It's actually a recently fallen pulley wheel that was actually laying on the ocean floor, we believe. So to answer that question, so far, there have been no chariot wheels that have been recovered, like brought up and saying, look, this is a chariot wheel, or have been actually documented in any way. There have been some ideas about it. There have been some thoughts. Maybe this could be a chariot wheel. Maybe this coral structure could hide chariot wheels. However, I've talked to great guys like uh, Dr. Robert Carter, who is a Young Earth Creation marine biologist, and he says, you know what, I've seen the coral structures they're talking about. They're not unique. We find the same coral all around the world. It's nothing special about it. It's kind of a table coral growing there. So to answer that question, as much as I would love to say, yes, we have the chariot wheels, yes, we've discovered chariot wheels at a Red Sea crossing, I gotta be honest and say, we haven't to date. Nor should we expect to actually find them. Okay, just because we don't have the chariot wheels doesn't mean the event didn't happen. First of all, we have God's word that said it happened. That's enough. The second of all, chariot wheels and chariots were made out of wood. Does wood sink to the bottom right there where they were crossed? No, they float. And In fact, with these crashing waves and currents moving, these chariots would have been swept along the ocean. They would have floated away and they would have rotted very quickly. Wood in the ocean environment, especially with fish and all kinds of mollusks and all kinds of stuff, actually decomposes wood very, very quickly. What chance would a chariot wheel made out of wood sitting in the exact place not moved over 3,500 years have to survive to the present day with all kinds of creatures eating it and decomposing it? We should not expect to find chariot wheels or chariot parts in the Red Sea crossing. We really shouldn't. So for those who say, oh, you've never found the chariots, therefore the exodus didn't happen, you gotta go back and say, oh, you're kind of actually asking the wrong question. We shouldn't actually expect to find them at all. So to answer that question, I'm glad you asked, because I... Knew somebody would. We haven't found any confirmed chariot chariot wheels, parts, pieces, um, horses, men, anything like that from a crossing, despite what you might see on a YouTube video or a clickbait, you know, website that's gonna get you to click on it and read, oh, groundbreaking discovery, and with a million ads behind it, you know, a lot of that has different motivations. Um, I'd love to say yes, but at this point we gotta say no. Maybe we'll discover something, who knows? But we shouldn't really expect to find that, nor should that rule out in any way the actual event of the Bible. Great question. I think we've got time for about one more question, if anybody's got it. Ooh, are we sure the tablet said Yahweh? So those letters is basically the Y, the H, and the W, which is the Hebrew word, the, the name Yahweh, which is, they're pretty sure, and that's actually that exact thing is what they're really trying to make sure is researched well and published well, because they want to make sure that their translation and interpretation of this tablet is going to stand up to, to scrutiny. So the research paper by uh, Dr. Scott Stripling and the Biblical Associates for Biblical Research and the rest of their team are really making sure that that is 100% buttoned up foolproof. So yeah, looking at those letters in combination, that's what we see in Hebrew. In fact, the, what we oftentimes refer to as the tetragrammaton, the a word for Yahweh, actually usually includes four letters. But the earliest records, the earliest versions actually only included three. So again, this to me says this is a very early tablet, a very very early reference to the name Yahweh. And so yes, in Hebrew we would be sure 100% those letters in that combination are speaking about Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Judah. Pretty cool. Alright, I think that's about the time, unless we have one last question. I'm also, free to hang out with you guys all night tonight. I don't have anywhere to go except for home. So, um, I don't, you know, I'm not traveling from far away. So, I don't have to, like, you know, go to a hotel or catch a plane or anything like that. So, I could stay with you guys all night. But I do want to respect your time there. So, I can certainly hang out afterwards. Uh, Adam, I'll turn it back over to you, my friend.
0: Thank you, I'll leave you the keys, Nate. You can lock up. You know, later tonight turn the lights off when you leave
1: <laughs>
0: yeah you're welcome to do that yeah definitely hang out uh, I'll close this with in prayer in just a moment but yes hang out and chat with Nate he'll be happy to continue answering questions as, as long as you want to hang around a uh, couple quick announcements our next Zosa presentation is exactly four weeks from today March 16th our speaker is Dr. Thomas Kendall, and he'll be speaking about fossils anybody like fossils here fossils are pretty cool and so the, the title of the talk is The Witness of the Fossils. We'll be looking at how the fossil record actually supports the biblical creation narrative um, rather than the alternatives that it's often used to present. So come back and, uh, on uh, March 16th and join us then. And then uh, we do have our resource table set up back in the fellowship hall as usual. Unfortunately, we don't have any archaeology books. We need, to, we need to correct that. But we've got lots of stuff and... Uh, We have put a bunch of stuff on clearance. We have a 50% off table back there tonight. So come back there and check it out. So let me pray. Father, thank you so much for, uh, as always, the way in which the world around us and the things that we see line up with what your word has to tell us. We should expect that. And uh, we trust what you have told us, regardless of whether we find the evidence we'd like to see or not. But we're grateful for uh, what we do have and uh, we pray for Nate and others like him who are working hard to continue to uncover things that, that confirm your word and pray for wisdom and discernment and interpreting those things correctly and and uh, pray that incorrect interpretations would be uh, just rectified, Lord, and, and put away. And thank you so much that uh, you know, you've given us your word again and we can rely upon that. Bless Nate and the work that he's doing, both at Canyon Ministries and with all of his research and studies for his degree. Continue to bless him with wisdom and and discernment and uh, use the great skill you've given him to present it, to to share with as many as as possible, Lord. Uh, Bless this evening and, and everyone here and keep us safe as we head home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.